0: what's your favorite scary movie i'm verona i'm sarah today we're going to be covering the 1974 black christmas this was my first time watching it. Was it your first time or no?
1: It was my first time watching it all the way through. I've just like kind of seen some of the iconic scenes over the years. So I was like, oh yeah, I know this movie but as we were watching it, I realized that I'd never actually seen it beginning to end. So
0: I've never seen it and I like didn't know much about it. I like knew a little bit. I knew that there's been two remakes of it and both those remakes are widely hated especially the 2019. So I was very excited to see this and honestly, I had no expectations going in but whatever little expectations I did
1: have this like fucking knocked it out of the park I knew the general plot because I've seen the 2006 remake a couple of times and I really liked it both of the times that I watched it I'm just like a big Mary Elizabeth Winstead fan so like I had a phase around that time where I just was watching everything she was doing and then I kind of never saw it again so I really did forget like the majority of what goes on so this was super fun to watch and now that I like Was sitting down and watching it, I realized that I wasn't nearly as familiar with it as I thought I was. And it was so good and so scary and i'm really excited to watch that remake now to kind of compare and see how i feel about it because of course the early 2000s remakes of these classics are never widely well received anyway but i am kind of curious to see how it holds up in terms of how scary this was before we dive into our notes and everything i just had a little point of business here the the episode that came out this week a few days ago the week that we're recording this one was the house of wax 2005 episode So since that episode just came out, this won't be out for a little while obviously, but I would like to mention that one of the big topics of discussion during that House of Wax episode was the weird incest vibes between Carly and Nick. And I feel a little silly when I listen back to the House of Wax episode now that I have learned this, but that was actually one of the most popular ships of the time, was Carly and Nick. Ew! I went to find some stills of them to make the, the social media posts for the episode. And i messaged like a friend of mine about it, too. But I searched for um, like Carly and Nick House of Wax 2005. And it was like, did you mean um, Carly and Nick Hoobastank the Reason AMV on YouTube? You please send that to me. Absolutely. And I don't want to put whoever made that edit, by the way, back in the day. I don't mean to make fun of your your fan works. I don't know. I do. I don't know if you've grown or anything since then. But yeah, I, I just found like so much fan work about them. And incest's not really my thing. So I didn't research any further than that. But I just was like so blown away by how much of it was out there. I posted the, the Instagram post, the siblings are dating parody. And one of my friends, who also is part of a horror podcast called The Horrible People's Podcast, if you guys want to check that out, they messaged me and they were like, oh, yeah, I remember this being, like, a big deal when this movie came out, like, how crazy the incest was and how popular it was. And so I was, like, telling them all about the um, the AMVs and, like, the fan fiction that was thrown at me just for looking for stills of them together and we were just laughing about it but yeah apparently it was like one of the most popular early incest ships of the 2000s that got people into incest shipping so that is so nasty so
0: vile all of you need to be put down we make silly little funny hee hee ha jokes about it on here but ew Anyway, Black Christmas, 1974. This was such a progressive movie for the time. The themes in this were so crazy that I can't imagine either of the remakes really living up to it unfortunately but like it deals with abortion, domestic violence, misogyny, just so many things that we talk a lot about on this podcast because a lot of our favorite horror movies end up dealing with (laughs) this kind of the same themes and I just feel like this was
1: handled so well, but also so scary at the same time. A lot of the stuff that I found when I was trying to look up some just extra information to fill in blanks that I thought I was missing, a lot of people were talking about this as if it was a misogynistic work instead of it being a work that featured misogyny as a theme in it. And I don't know, like, if I'm gonna sound like such an idiot for going into this thinking that, like, no, I think it's a movie that featured misogyny as a theme but I don't think that it was a misogynistic movie maybe I'm missing some kind of context that everybody else was picking up when they were calling it a misogynistic piece of work but that's I feel the same way you did I felt that it was really it like addressed all of those things but it wasn't narratively pushing any of those things if that makes sense but it was never in favor of like misogyny it was it seemed like it was criticizing so I liked it, but whatever.
0: Yeah. No, that's exactly what it's doing. It's not in favor of it. It's criticizing it. It's showing you this killer that clearly has some like Freudian trauma going on and is taking it out on young women that he feels entitled to because they're women. And and it also couples it with Jess and Peter's relationship, which we clearly see is an abusive dynamic. And that's another reason why it shows that she is pregnant and having a baby Because I saw some people being like, why do we have to have a pregnancy plot in this? And I was like, well, if you look at like the subject matter of the movie, it makes sense. It all ties together. The killer keeps repeating something about a baby and what have you done to the baby and things like that. And he echoes the same phrasing that Peter says to Jess, which is why Jess and the others believe that the killer could be Peter. It just all ties together so nicely. None of us have been a stranger to A man thinking he is entitled to us for some reason and then getting very scary when we deny his advances. This is such a sad reality for so many women that, like, obviously not the exact same things, but things like this happen. So it's just always a terrifying concept in movies when this happens. And this was so scary. We kept every single time one of the phone calls happened or we heard the killer's voice, you and I were texting each other. We were like, this is terrifying. Like, this is so scary. I hate this.
1: <laughs> the first couple of phone calls reminded me of the moments in religious horror, like demonic like possession horror movies about like exorcism and stuff. That's what the voice was kind of reminding me of in the first few calls, especially the multiple voices. I was like, this reminds me of when they decide they're actually going to try to talk to the demon and it's like coming out of a person and it's so scary this is one of the first films that did the babysitter and the man upstairs trope it's more i I think when a stranger calls is kind of considered the more famous use of that trope not that when a stranger calls is necessarily a more famous slasher than black christmas is but in terms of like what people think of when they think of the the phone call is coming from inside the house kind of trope they usually think of when a stranger calls and i also think just speaking of the killer in general the thing that's really interesting to me is that there is no backstory for this killer at all and it's intentionally left completely vague like you can kind of try and piece together theories from what he's saying on the phone and a lot of people have theories and they're differing depending on who you talk to and how many times they've seen the film but there actually really is no conclusion to like who Billy is how he's up there or rather why he's up there why it's this sorority um is this the first group of victims what is he talking about when he's talking about I know what you did I feel like that makes it
0: so much scarier not knowing the motive, not knowing why this is happening, not knowing why they're targeted. And also, we never really see the killer. We see glimpses of him, we see his hands, we see a shot of his eye, we see him in the shadows in the darkness, but we never full on see who the killer is, which is so much scarier to me because that just kind of shows you it could be anybody. It could happen to you and it could be anyone that you know, it could be a stranger, it could be literally anyone. It's very scary, and especially, like, back then, because, like, the 70s were obviously a much different time than it is now. We are so used to seeing these tropes and these things happening over and over and over again, because obviously it's been almost 50 years since. But back then, this was, like, kind of newer. Like, this was stuff that they hadn't fully been seeing. I wish I could have been in the theaters when this movie was out, because I would have loved to have seen it then. My mind would have been blown.
1: So good. I'm just, I'm really blown away by this. So I love how it opens and ends with the same like shot of the house, which like I immediately was so excited when we started watching it because I haven't watched an older horror movie now since October, which is a month ago from when we're recording this. But I really binged, obviously, you know, my horror movies in October. And so there was kind of a wide range of decades of movies that I picked from then so far this month like I have really not been watching horror movies much um the only ones I've been watching have been like re-watches of favorites or just the few that we've recorded for the podcast so far but otherwise I was kind of on a bit of a cleanse so it was really nice to get to watch an old horror movie again because I love the nostalgic feeling of an older horror movie and I actually got really into like the 70s as a decade during my October marathon and I kept saying, I was like, I need to watch more 70s horror because every time I watch a movie from this decade, I love it so much and I have so few of them and also it gives you the same nostalgia of an old Christmas movie because it technically is obviously a Christmas movie and so despite the fact that I knew we were settling in to watch a horror movie, I felt so suddenly cozy like the snow falling and the wind sounds and like the Christmas music with like my little blanket all cuddled up so very odd like feeling to put myself in the cozy mood to watch an old Christmas movie and then it also give me the same unsettled fun feeling of a horror movie. so
0: you know, my first note the very first thing I wrote the second that the house came into view was oh this feels like Christmas. Because whenever I think of Christmas, I think of this very specific feeling and this very specific look. And the second that we opened on that house, when we see, like, the little roof and all the Christmas lights and the snow, I was like, oh, my God, no, this feels like Christmas. And I love it. I love it so much. Um, this is definitely going to be added into, like, my rotation of, like, Christmas
1: movies now. So I'm very excited for that. Also, The Moaner what a terrible, sad nickname to be given as a person. Imagine you're like trying to do like creepy prank calls to someone and scare them and they like call you something that embarrassing. I would never, (laughs) I wouldn't be killing any of them because I wouldn't be showing my face in that house. I'd be like, oh, got to move on. Never mind. Can't recover from that one. And more men should have shame for this reason. And everyone's standing there listening to the first call when Barb's like, antagonizing him on the phone i cannot believe the way everyone was standing around so horrified listening to him i would have been giggling so hard like up until he's like okay i'm gonna kill you and then hangs up up until that point it was so freaking funny that was the funniest phone call i've ever heard he's like moaning and snorting and he's like "Mm, i want to lick your cunt i was like that's so fucking funny like i would not be standing there like oh no who is it hang up this is so scary i'd be like put that shit on speaker This is so funny. I'd be like, I need to record this to make this my outgoing fucking voicemail message. This is the funniest thing I've ever heard. Like, I'm on Barb's side. I heard worse in Omegle chat rooms when I was, like, 11 years old. (gasps) Oh my god, what did you say when we were watching this? You said, like, this is the most normal man in, like, a stranger's Twitch chat at any given time. Literally, yeah. And it is. If you're a woman on the internet,
0: you have dealt with, like, pretty much, like, the worst shit possible. Like, everything this man is saying and doing, we all deal with it on a daily basis. We've all had that one man in our, like, Twitter replies posting his micro dick. Yeah, you're nodding. You get it.
1: Or just saying, like you said, the most weirdly explicit shit, and then you're, like, giggling. And then when you're deciding to not take it too seriously and be like, haha, yeah, okay, whatever. They're like, I'm gonna kill you, by the way. And you're like, oh, it's not funny anymore. Cool, got it. You're like, oh, okay.
0: This kind of reminded me of this one, like, kind of shitty movie that I watched a couple years ago on Amazon. It was, like, basically, like, a group of sex workers living in a house together and, like, they're constantly being filmed at all times. And, like, that's how they make money. And then there's this one guy who, like, is obsessed with all them and talks to all of them. And he thinks he's so special because, you know, they talk to him. And then he hears them one day, like, make, like, a, a mean joke about him. And then his feelings get hurt. So then he locates the the house, which is under, like, tremendous fucking security. And, like, why did I use the word tremendous?
1: It was a great word.
0: I guess. But, and it's, like, in a remote location. Like, it's supposed to be, like, so hidden away no one can find it. He tracks it down. He kills all the security guards. Then he, like, starts killing the girls one by one. And that's, like, kind of what this reminded me of. Because I was like, wow, male egos are so fucking fragile. You say one thing to them. That sets them off and they could go on a whole fucking, like, killing
1: rampage. The first... Death, we get obviously is Claire, and the face in the closet behind the garment bag scared the shit out of me. Before that, despite the scary phone call and stuff, before that, the movie kind of is still like calm, it's like cozy, having a nice time. Barb's getting drunk, there's like really funny little comedy moments here and there, and it's just like a nice, good time. And then when Claire is alone, it suddenly kicks into the creepy horror of it all. Billy's face behind the plastic sheet bag is so creepy and it's such a lingering shot and, like, just him in the background of any of the shots always gets me. But I like that. I like that it was, like, unassuming and it was, like, this slow moment of you just kind of having to let your eyes adjust and see it versus something really pointed about it and, like...
0: Like, holds on it for so long, too. And it's just him breathing... And it's like so scary also same with like the pov shots that they do throughout this like where we're in his eyes and like we're seeing what he's seeing oh my god it's so chilling like this is genuinely such a chilling horror movie I love it.
1: It's really interesting to me because this is actually like really widely regarded as one of the original slashers that have kind of made what the modern slasher is for us now. This was kind of considered one of the first of a handful. So there's like Peeping Tom, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out, I think the same year. So like, it was just kind of one of the originals. But the director's writer, apparently kind of the final product that we have of it um, was less of a slasher and they kind of intended it to be more of a psychological thriller. The original script was apparently much more graphic than what we ended up getting as a final film because the director decided he wanted to focus less on the slashing and more on like the fear. And then apparently the writer agreed as well after seeing what changes the director was making was like, oh, I love this. This is a great idea. So they kind of totally shifted gears and made it more of a thriller than a slasher. But it is still considered one of the original slashers.
0: No and I think that was the right decision because I feel like anything more graphic would have taken away from the themes in this story because it also could have been so easy for them to actually fall into that like misogynistic wet dream that people believe it is because of the subject matter and because of the fact that this is both a male director and a male writer and it's a male serial killer who is purposely taking out his aggression on women victims specifically. So this really could have been like that, but I think leaning more towards what he wanted with the psychological aspect helped it a lot and made it what
1: it is. It's not that every slasher that has misogynistic themes in it is necessarily like an inherently misogynistic piece of work. But when you are focused more on the violence than on the fear, you risk the possibility that the outcome ends up being um, gratuitous as opposed to just, like, fun horror. Because I truly believe, especially because the writer was so open to changing the vibe without, you know, any real issue, I do think that that is kind of a testament to the fact that when the original script was being made and it was made much more violently, it was... It wasn't intending to be misogynistic or gratuitous. It was just because like, oh, I get like, I'm writing a horror movie and I, you know, if I like horror movies, I'm going to get excited about writing one. I want to make it like unique and violent and I'm going to have fun writing it. But yeah, like I said, you kind of, you can risk it becoming gratuitous depending on the the theme. Do you want to talk about Claude? Claude, the most beautiful cat in a movie ever.
0: Amazing name for a cat too. Claude. We love him. Both of us were so scared that something was going to happen to Claude. Um, thankfully, nothing did.
1: But also, I want to... Where where was he the rest of the movie? Final girl, Claude. I feel like if they killed him, they would have probably shown it. It was like, it's the 70s. I've seen a lot of dead animals in like 70s horror movies. But they didn't. So I have to assume that he made it out okay. He did because he's a bad bitch. Oh, I also have a note on here. Um, Olivia Hussey, if that's how you pronounce her last name. I'm not sure. I don't think I've ever heard it out loud. We were like, what is that accent? That is so beautiful. Like, it's British, but it's, like, unique. She's Argentinian, so it's, like, this, like, combo of the two. But, yeah, that's why her accent sounds like that. She has, like, a kind of combo. Somebody on Reddit said that. Like, I literally Googled, like, what the hell is this accent? And there was, like, an old Reddit thread where people were talking about it, so.
0: sense kind of like um, Anya Taylor-Joy. She's our Argentinian, and she also has that accent where she switches in between lots of different ones. Slay. I love it. It's so beautiful sounding. She has such a nice voice. Um, I had such a crush on her when I was younger and watched her adaptation of Romeo and Juliet when I was a kid. I thought she was like the most beautiful woman alive.
1: That is literally so funny that you say that because I was looking to see like just her accent whatever and it was giving me all this information about her and apparently when she went to go work on Roxanne, Steve Martin was like, is it Roxanne? I think that's what I'm thinking of. But Steve Martin was like, you are, like, one of my favorite actresses. You're in one of my favorite movies of all time. And she was like, oh, Romeo and Juliet. And he was like, Black Christmas. I've seen it, like, 27 times.
0: I love that.
1: (laughs) Steve Martin, man of
0: taste, clearly. the iconic rocking chair shot. So scary. So good. And the way that he suffocates her through the garment bag, like, lunges at her from the closet with it in hand and then, like, suffocates her with
1: it. So fucking scary. I can't get over it. It's so scary, so good. The brute strength to like suffocate someone from the front is crazy. I also had like a note in here about their frat friend. I think, is that supposed to be Barb's boyfriend? I kind of had a little trouble keeping track of like who was dating who because like a lot of the guys looked really similar. I meant to say Phyllis. I thought it was Phyllis's boyfriend. Phil. I liked the guy. Like, the guy who's playing Santa, he was so funny. And he was, like, swearing his ass off with, like, these little kids climbing in his lap to, like, talk to Santa. And Barb's, like, getting shit-faced and sharing her, like, whiskey with this little child. And she's, like, he's, like, wasted. And the kid starts giggling. I'm like, Barb. I
0: love her. I love Barb. Barb should have been a final girl. I understand why she wasn't in terms of the story. But for me personally, wish she would have been a final girl. She was everything
1: to me. As I said, her and Mrs. Mack, like just two two queens. Maximizing their joint sleigh. Maximizing their joint sleigh exactly. The comedic timing that they both had for all their stuff was great. But I love um, Mrs. Mack and Mr. Harrison as like a duo because the way they played off each other, like his, like him being the straight, Guy And her being, like, the comedic break was so, so funny. Like, playing off of each other. I love
0: her trying to cover all the different posters, hide them from him. And then when she goes in her... First of all, her using him to get a ride to the store. Iconic. Good for her. But her going in her room and, like, just sitting there, like, talking shit about him while he's, like, on the other side of the door is so funny.
1: Oh, I made a note about how these... 70s horror movies have the craziest sound design and like the most like jarring way of using music um like I think of like you know like Psycho, Peeping Tom, um this specifically Black Christmas is going on my list with like Amityville Horror and Carrie for being so jarring and uncomfortable to listen to. I had like nightmares about both Carrie and Amityville Horror as a kid because of the music specifically. I could barely remember the violence, but I could remember being startled and like unsettled all the time by what they were doing with sound. So this is going to be added to that. That's my trilogy now, my golden trio of movies for that.
0: As it should be. Do you want to get into Jess and Peter's relationship? Because that's a lot to tackle. Like one of the following scenes is when Jess tells Peter that she's pregnant and leading up to it, she's so nervous, and she keeps calling him, to, or she doesn't keep calling him, but she, on the phone call, she tells him that she needs to speak to him in person. And he just just kind of, like, berating her, kind of, being like, I've been awake for three nights now, like, I don't want to deal with this shit, like, and we kind of slowly see their dynamic and how off it is. And she just keeps telling him, you know, like, no, I don't want to talk about this right now. I just want to talk about it in person. You can clearly see that she is worried to tell him and very scared. And in this scene, we can tell why. Because she's telling him how she does not want to have the baby. She has told him this before, apparently, how she wants to be able to do all of these things with her life before she becomes a mother. And he basically calls her selfish and says, do you consider anyone except for yourself? The second he said that, I went blind with rage because I was like, what do you mean? She's considering a whole other human life. This is like the most like selfless thing she could do because if she was truly selfish, she would have just had that baby and like, you know, fucked it up for life. Um, Also, she's the one who's pregnant. She's the one who has to carry it. Who gives a fuck about your feelings? You want to have a child? Go get someone else pregnant that wants to have a kid. I don't know.
1: Leave her alone. She should be in the club. A little bit later when they're kind of talking about like he's he's trying to change her mind on the decision, obviously. And when they're having their next discussion about it that she didn't even want to have. And he was like, no, we're having this conversation. It becomes really clear that not only does she like not want to be with him, but she also is considering his future like it's like he's not really thinking it through and she's kind of like it's not just this kid that we're gonna fuck up and it's not just my life that i'm not gonna be able to do what i want with but like you have plans for your life that i don't think you're realizing you can't do if we go through with this like you can sit here and be like let's do the right thing and get married and then you have to have the baby and whatever but she's like, you're not gonna actually get to be a concert pianist if we go through with this. Like, you kind of are clearly basing your decision on the fact that I should give everything up for this kid, but you are also going to have to give everything up for this kid if that's what we do. Also, for a guy that wants to be a concert pianist, he is so bad at playing the piano, and he's also working way too fucking hard, because why is that shot of him playing for the conservatory so, like, he is, like, pouring with sweat, and he's, not even playing that hard it's not a particularly complicated piece of music he's doing a terrible job at it and he is sweating like he's running a fucking 5k at like sprinting speed and not that deep nobody's taking it from you man (laughs) he was playing the fuck out of that song
0: not in a good way I really like how the whole movie, they're kind of trying to set it up as if he is the killer. Even though his storyline is really separate from the killer's, it's just he is an abusive man spiraling out of control because everything in his life is not going the way that he wants. He isn't doing well with his music, which is why he ends up beating the shit out of that piano with a piano stand, which it's not his piano. You cannot just destroy property, sir. And then... You know, he's trying to get Jess to have this baby because I feel like, one, it's to control her, to keep her in his grasp, because if she is pregnant, she'll depend on him. She won't be able to leave. And two, it'll feel like he's actually done something with his life and accomplished something. And so he can kind of blame his failures on music and him dropping out of his conservatory on this kid. Which we know that if she did end up having the child later down the road, he would end up resenting both her and the kid and talking about how he had to quit his aspiring music career for them, even though it wasn't aspiring and he was failing. But he would never take the blame on himself. He would place it on his wife and child.
1: No, I know. He's got this kind of like, he's trying to convince her it's a good idea because he's like, I don't even want to be in like college anymore. Like, I don't even want to go to the conservatory anymore. So, like, you're not even taking this from me. Don't worry. But there's this weird, like, air of, yeah, exactly what you said. You know that 10 years down the line, it's going to be like, well, I didn't even actually want to have to quit music, but I did because, like, you went and got yourself pregnant somehow. So I had to take care of it. Like, it's a convenient excuse, but it's also, like, something to just make everything worse down the line exactly that I have just a note that just says I'm going to kill Peter with a hammer quite literally yeah she says like I can't have this conversation with you a second time we've just had the conversation I've told you what's going to happen and she kind of as she goes to leave she goes like I'm getting this abortion like just to remind you that is how this conversation has gone and I'm going to go get an abortion and he's like yeah we'll see I was like (sighs) blind with rage exactly where you were at that threw me into the sun
0: Like, we'll see. Um, And then it makes sense why she doesn't tell the cop about the phrasing that the killer uses that's the same as what Peter says. It makes sense why. Because if you tell the cop about that, one, he's going to suspect that Peter is the killer. But two, even if Peter's not the killer, they're going to dive deeper into your relationship probably and realize he's abusive. And... Whenever you're the victim in that situation, you don't want to do anything that jeopardizes that person, even if they are hurting you, because one, you are very attached to them, and two, you fear for your own safety, because if they find out, or if they even slightly assume that you are the one who went and told someone about what they did, they're going to take it out on you. So that's where her mind is going, which is why she protects him rather than even slightly hinting at the fact that, oh, well, my boyfriend said that same thing earlier, which was very creepy and very scary using that exact same phrasing, but we assume it's because, well, one, at first we assume it's because he is the killer, but that's obviously a red herring. But then we also kind of think, oh, maybe the killer has been listening in on their conversations. And then
1: we find out the killer has been in the house. So for starters, we do know the killer is inside of the house because of the POV shots. But again, like you said, you think it's Peter creeping around the house. And then he's also, when he's not there, he's calling them like harassing them or whatever. He, him going back and forth between being like, you're trying to, he, the phrasing was, you're going to cut this baby out. Like it's a wart. Then additionally, he keeps referring to this, like as she's going to kill their child. And first of all, fuck you, man. Just shut the fuck up. I think one of the reasons why when I look at misogynistic language like that inside this movie, but I don't see this movie as like a misogynistic piece of work is because Jess is not only the final girl and not only like the main kind of protagonist that we're following, but she is actively and constantly shown to be kind of like a meek, polite person. And Additionally, like, that also works with the casting, because Olivia has, like, a very soft look to her. Like, she's very sweet-looking, so, like, the casting choice helps as well. But she's never shown as, like, a rebellious, like, super-intelligent, independent woman in this movie. So to have a character like her saying, Oh, I'm pregnant with my boyfriend, like, I'm unmarried and I would like to have an abortion kind of, at least for the time, seems really progressive because it isn't framing her as, like, a free spirit or whatever. Like, she's, like, a good student and she's very polite and sweet and, you know, she has, like, her boyfriend and her little friends and she's never shown as, like, a rebellious woman. So to frame abortion as something that she's just doing as, like, an intelligent choice and a necessity for her life and for where her life is is seems just very... Across the board, I just don't see how you could see that as a misogynistic choice of how to make your film. I do think that it was, like, really progressive and it fit the theme really well.
0: Yeah. In most movies, they would end up having Barb be the one to do this, or a character like Barb. Oh, my God, I was
1: just thinking that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because she is the very free spirit, no man can tell me what to do, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want kind of character, and that is usually... The types of characters who go through these things, like think of like Rizzo in Grease. She's the one, she doesn't have an abortion, but she is the one who is assumed to be pregnant and considers that as one of her options. And she's the type of character that they would place that on because she's the free spirit, whatever. And then a lot of the time they would end up demonizing that character and like making it be like, look, ladies, this is what's wrong. This is why you should submit to
1: men. And the truth is that those in real life, and in film, those women who are the free-spirit, independent, no man can tell me what to do, who are like, oops, I got pregnant and I didn't mean to and I'm gonna have an abortion, literally nothing wrong with that either. Like, obviously. I think that maybe in today's day it would be a little weird to try and frame like, oh, but guys, this abortion is valid because the girl who wants to get it is like really sweet and she has a future. I can see how that might be a little bit like opposite end of the the pendulum swinging the other way maybe in today's time. But it is really interesting to see that this movie from, you know, almost 40 years ago, it kind of framed it as abortion is an issue that affects women of all of all classes and of all walks of life. And it's really weird to demonize it as this thing that like Loose, fast women only deal with, and if you're a good person, then this shouldn't even be an issue. Like, I think it's really nice that it was framed that way, at least in the 70s, kind of special.
0: I also like that it wasn't like really centered around it. This was just like part of her character. It wasn't like the full story. It wasn't like she was being punished or stalked or killed or whatever for wanting an abortion. That was just backstory to her character, and mostly it was backstory to the villain, if we really think about it. The villain obviously is dealing with some sort of trauma. I mentioned earlier Freudian trauma to be specific because not only is he talking about a mother but he's also talking about the baby and he's talking about himself and like some weird thing that he's working through that he is taking out on this group of women. One of my screenwriting classes that I'm in Our professor always talks about how you want the protagonist and the antagonist to have a similar wound so that the story happens to both of them in very similar ways. And I feel like this is a very good example of that. Even though we don't get much backstory to this antagonist, we get it through the protagonist.
1: It's a unique way to go about that that theory, the similar wounds thing that you're, you're talking about. One of the theories that a lot of people, that's like one of the more common ones with the killer backstory included that little girl well I say little girl but she was like 13 which is that's a little girl but like it always threw me off because 13 is a high school student or it could be a high school student depends where your birthday falls whatever yeah they go back and forth between referring to her as a little girl and a high schooler I kind of forget that's the same thing like that's a 13 year old girl that's a little kid but it's also a high schooler one of the more common theories is that that victim was like there was like some csa there was like because that's what that phone call after meant and how that would like tie into Billy's backstory, but like again, there's no solid answer to any of the questions about the killer and his his origin, which just kind of makes it a lot scarier.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense because I was kind of wondering how the little girl tied into this. I was like, was that just like a separate murder that got thrown into this? How was she connected to it? But I feel like that makes a lot of sense. He went and did that and now he's so guilt ridden that he ends up taking it out on another group of victims
1: rather than, I don't know, just killing himself. I just, one of my notes that I wrote down was this line of dialogue where Barb just like arguing with Nash, like the detective at the counter at the police station, and she says something to him, and he goes, Shut up. <laughs> it just like, <laughs> me up. Like it was such a good little line delivery. But I got so excited. So I, I can't remember what other episode that we talked about this in. But there was an episode watching an old animated movie. When you look at the scene, you can tell what item is going to be interacted with that was me in this movie, but with cast. So I was like, these cops are so stupid and annoying. But I know they need to go to a cop and get a cop's help with what's going on. Because I remember like the phone call being in the house. And it was the cops like that found it out. I was like, when is that happening? Because It's not going to be Nash. Like it's not going to be like this guy that's the comedic relief cop. And then they showed a shot of like John Saxon. And I was like, there he is. There's the cop that's going to save the day in this story. Like, I got it. I understood. This whole cast had me so excited. There's so many great actors in this. Um, I didn't even notice until, like, a later scene, probably about, like, the beginning of Act 2, that Phyllis was played by Andrea Martin, who I love Andrea Martin. And she's so sweet as Phyllis, too. Phyllis is probably one of my favorite characters in the movie. We all know and love Andrea Martin from My Big Fat Greek Wedding franchise, and... Little Italy, Deep Cut, Little Italy, starring Emma Roberts and Hayden Christensen. My favorite Andrea Martin role is, she's in the show Great News, which if anybody who's listening to this hasn't watched Great News, it's canceled, it's over, but there are two seasons on Netflix and it is like the funniest show ever. Please watch Great News. But I love this cast. The whole cast is so cool. People just kept popping up and I was like, oh, 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 I know you. I know you. I know you. Got it. You, you were hyped for Mrs. Mack's death in the beginning there.
0: Not because I wanted her dead, but because I was like, oh no, she's gonna die. The second you go into a creepy attic, you're gonna die. I'm sorry, but it's happening. But it was a cool death, so. It was so cool.
1: I'm sorry, Miss Mac. You... Were amazing. I think what really fucked me up with that death is a she didn't die very quickly, but you don't see it. You only heard it, and so she gets hit around the face, neck area with the crane hook that he flings at her. And then the shot we get next is from outside of the attic, and it's like where she was on the ladder with just like her head and shoulders in the attic, and she shoots up into the attic because you know that like they pulled the winch and the crane hook came up. We don't see her till later, and it's such a brief flash, like such a brief flash of her, but we. See that the crane kind of went and hooked under like her jaw and pulled her up by the head basically when he pulled her in. And the shot that we get of her where it was like her body and her legs on the ladder and then it, they shoot up into the attic off the ladder, she is screaming for a long time and it is a lingering shot of just the empty ladder with her screaming and I really it really fucked me up and I have to admit that this is one of those moments where I was like I'm so glad that they didn't show it as graphically because that was so much scarier to me than I think seeing her hanging off of it with like that shitty bright red 70s blood pouring out of her I don't think that would have been as scary to me as just knowing that she was up there and she was screaming and that was going on like that was so much scarier to me older horror really mastered that, the not showing
0: aspect of it, because that makes it so much scarier, your mind being able to fill in the blank. The unknown is so much scarier than whatever is being shown to me at all times.
1: Oh my God, this movie really understood that and really did it well. You know, I think about that a lot because I think about how I would try to explain these like really scary horror movies to like, let's say like my mom or my dad or someone like that, like modern horror movies that I was into, which would have been... Around that time, probably like when I was getting into it, like the early 2000s kind of stuff, I think I think about how I would try to describe like something really scary that I'd seen in a horror movie to one of my parents or something. And they would give me this kind of like back in my day, it was way scarier if you couldn't see it. And I kind of always thought like, yeah, I can see the appeal of that. But I think sometimes it is scary to see it. And I don't think that it's a general rule one way or another. But now when I watch like these 70s horror movies, I think the reason for me, at least, why it was so much scarier to see it sometimes is because if I'm watching my horror movies from 2005 onward, sometimes they're silly and sometimes they're not high quality. But a lot of the time, like if you pair it with the right acting seeing it is terrifying because we have the technology to make it actually look terrifying the reason why this movie scared me so badly when we were watching it this black christmas is because if they like i said if they had shown it because we see a few wounds and stuff in the movie happen they're not that scary. Like the blood is like neon orange. Like it literally looks like a McDonald's ketchup packet. It's so bad. And like the wounds kind of don't look very scary. They don't look very traumatizing. It's just like kind of corny looking. And if they had shown Mrs. Mac hanging from her jaw and had like this fake shitty blood spurting out, it wouldn't have been to me as scary as just hearing her screaming and having to picture it. Because when I'm picturing it now, I'm picturing what it would look like in, you know, in modern time, like in real life, like I'm picturing the actual wound, I'm not looking at shitty 70s gore effects. And since that's the kind of stuff that my parents would have watched versus like, if I were to if I were to show my parents like a Saw movie today, they would not think okay, telling is always scarier than showing. They wouldn't think that anymore. But their frame of reference for what's scary is like seeing something really shitty and fake versus hearing it. I'm like, that makes total sense. And I can really see that come true in this movie. As we were watching, I I started laughing because I said Nash is zero for two. Because that day alone, he had like fucked up taking the missing persons case about Claire. And then they had to come back and yell at him to take like make him take it seriously. Then they call him in and they're like, Hey, um, I was just wondering why you didn't like do this correctly. And I was like, Oh my god, Nash is zero for two today. And he wasn't taking these like phone calls at the sorority seriously. <laughs> and then the lieutenant is like, Okay, well, bring me the number for the sorority, I'm gonna call them. And he brings in the number he took earlier, and it's like Felatio 8200 or whatever it was. And they're like laughing at him, and I was like, Never mind, zero for three actually. Again, this is just a movie about how men have no shame and they should. I love a good callback. Oh, it was so funny. It was so funny. I I was so shocked. I was like, I can't believe that joke came back. And then he said something like, well, where did you get the number? This number that's fellatio. Where'd you get this? He's like, she gave it to me. And he's like, she gave. oak. Okay. also speaking of the phone situation, the phone tap technology thing was so cool to see how like he's running through the different towers in the room and he's trying to figure out which line he can hear the ringing from because that's how they used to tap phones are you joking that is the coolest thing I've ever seen and it also added so much suspense to have this like detective running up and down the aisles trying to find the source of the ringing before the ringing stopped you know we we still get that in like modern crime shows and like CSI and criminal minds and whatever the fuck they're like you got to keep the killer on the line for this many seconds they do it in scream too like you have to keep the killer on long enough for us to like trace it properly but the fact that the tracing it properly like triangulating which area it's coming from used to literally be a guy running around trying to find the source of the ringing is so interesting
0: i not they have multiple people like running through these banks because we see how many phones there are we see that this is like a recurring problem throughout the movie where he's like you have to keep him talking, you have to keep him talking. Meanwhile, this man is just saying like the grossest, like most vile shit to these women. And they're like, I know it's not comfortable, but like keep him talking. And she's like, I'm trying, like it's not that easy. And he's like, I know, I'm sorry, but like, just try harder. And it's like, she's not even saying anything for most of it because this man is just going. He has his own script or whatever he's going on, which is just like another added layer to this of like how women are meant to be like, you know, the polite ones we are meant to just sit there and take it. Even if we're dealing with like the most vile shit coming at us, which this man is spewing to them, even if we're being sexually harassed, which they are, we just have to like kind of smile in the face of it and be like, haha, okay. Anyways, did that help? And they're like, nope, try it again. Try it four
1: more times at least. I, I love when, when the lieutenant when he calls Nash and he's like, okay, we figured out that the call's coming in from inside the house, I need you to warn this girl, because I'm trying to warn the cop that's outside the house, but he's not picking up because as we find out that cop has been killed. But he's like, I'm trying to get a hold of the cop so he can go in and get her, but I can't. So can you call her and get her to get out of the house? But to keep everything okay, I need you to tell her very calmly to leave the house, and if you can avoid it, don't tell her that the guy's in the house, like I don't need to cause a panic, just try and get her out of the house without telling her that. And In Nash's defense, he tried his best to not have to tell her that the guy was in the house. Jess was being a little obtuse, but he just kept saying, like, please don't ask any questions. Please just hang up the phone and leave the house. And she's like, oh my God, no, what is it? Why would this be happening? Why would you give me those instructions? Barb, like, Phyllis, where are you? And she's like calling for them. And I'm like, girl, the context clues. Girl, the context clues. (laughs) It was so upsetting. And he finally is like, I I give up he's in the fucking house obviously like you dumbass. he's in the house get out of the house (laughs) which she doesn't (laughs) obviously she doesn't because that wouldn't be a very good third act but he really did try his best for once this was the one time we saw Nash like actually trying to do his job correctly the worst part is (sighs) she leaves the phone off the hook so they can't even like try and call back and help her
0: yeah I'm like girl please I just just listen if I'm in a house and it is slightly big house but if I'm in a house and I'm screaming for someone because I I think they're asleep and I'm getting no response and there's a killer that's been going around and killing all of us I'm just gonna assume they're dead sorry I can't help you if I'm also dead so I'm gonna leave and go get help and if you're still alive then great but if you're not sucks the
1: hair grab oh my god yeah when yeah. she's like trying to get away from Billy and he grabs her by the hair and yanks her back it's so funny I know that that was a real hair grab because that was too like well acted but oh my god it scared the shit out of me Like I let out like a yelp. It was so bad. His screaming was so intense. It reminded me of how he was on the phone as well because he was screaming and screaming and screaming. And then all of a sudden it was just dead silence and him walking away and you hear his footsteps and his footsteps are so calm. Like they're not even like a slow creep. They were just, like, it was as if he was standing there screaming and he's, like, shaking the door and banging on it and then all of a sudden it's just dead quiet and he just, like, calmly goes, like, doot, 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 walks away. That was so much scarier to me than, like, him creeping or anything like that. Like, the fact that it was, like, he just shut it down and was like, okay, this isn't working and went and did something else scared the shit out of me. It reminded me of that phone call at the beginning with Barb when the whole group was there and he was being so hysterical and obscene and gross and loud. And then all of a sudden he gives up on that act and just goes, okay, I'm coming to kill you and hangs up. Like so chilling, so much more scarier than him being like a villain. No, that shit is so much scarier to me,
0: especially scarier than like a very like cartoony villain that goes like, oh, like I'm insane, you know, that type of thing. So much scarier when it's very like calm and calculated and like methodical almost. Because it's it's like a switch being flipped.
1: I think like so often we get like this trope where someone's being hysterical, crazy, loud, scary. And then they switch to being not like that, but so calm, eerily calm. But it's always for like one second. Like it's always like they're being crazy and then they're quiet and they're like, okay, now I'm being serious. And then they get angry again. The fact that his was like a full switch where he went from being crazy for a while to very calm and normal for a while made it so much scarier to me
0: it kind of reminds me a little bit of like in get out when rose at the end is on the phone and she's like we see her sitting like stone cold face but like her voice is like hysterical into the phone and it is so scary because you're like holy shit that's like evil like that's terrifying it kind of reminds me of that Obviously not the same thing because he goes from this very deranged screaming to just nothing, but same, similar vibes. We were both so excited when
1: Jess killed Peter, and by that point we knew it wasn't him. We just wanted him dead. We were just done with him anyway.
0: (laughs) I think we talked about this in one of the Saw episodes. When a woman is faced with her abuser and having to kill him, she's going to do it, and as she should. And that is this moment where he's coming down into the basement where she's hiding. She's not sure if he's the killer, but I don't think she really cares at that point because this is her moment to get away. But also, we don't know what happened in that basement. We see him creeping up to her, and then it cuts and goes away. And the next time we see them... She's laying with her eyes closed and her head back and he's dead in her lap and we assume that it was mutual struggle and then they both died and then the cops call her name and she wakes up and it's just such like a moment of victory for just a second for us as the audience because we believe that he's the killer and we're like oh she caught him but also it's like a sigh of relief We're like oh my
1: god she got away from Peter as well yeah when she's laying there you know that it's not the end of the movie even if you don't know what the timestamp is you know that when they show that shot of her laying there and the cops are all talking about like what happened I'm like oh there's gonna be like a few more minutes we're probably gonna get like a cliffhanger etc oftentimes when that happens in a horror movie when you get like that false ending and then you're like, oh, now the police have to see what's going on. There's often this um, this kind of sense of like a little bit of tragedy, like, oh no, she got the wrong guy. But I just, you just don't really get that sense with this where you kind of know as soon as they show her, you know, almost comatose from like the shock and being stated and stuff, um, you know that she got the wrong guy. There's no sense of, oh, that's so sad. She's going to wake up and find out that she killed her boyfriend and it was the wrong guy. Like, that's not the situation here. The situation here is like, well, I hope they get the right guy because there's also a second plot going on here with like a real killer. But I'm, I'm okay with the fact that she killed this guy too. That's fine. Well, plus when
0: he first is- enters, he is basically spiraling.
1: She no longer
0: has control over her and he's realizing that. So we don't know what he was going to do in that basement. We don't know what he did do in that basement in the time when we cut away. If he did try to attack her, if he was doing something. If his plan was to attack her anyways, or if he saw her in defense mode and immediately went for her. So either way, I'm like, something was happening. Something worse could have happened. That ending, so chilling, where one... First of all, why would the cops leave her alone? She just went through this traumatic experience and she's sedated and you said she's going to be out for at least four hours and then she's going to be groggy after that. Why would you leave her completely alone? Let's think. Let's
1: use our thinking brains. Even from like a medical standpoint, why did you sedate someone and then like not supervise her? She could choke on her tongue. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Like anything could happen here. And then that ending where
0: we hear... The killer and then we hear the phone ringing probably on par with me with the first saw of like chilling ending credit sequences are you gonna say the same thing yeah <laughs> yes they didn't get him he's still there he's still in the house with her she's alone in the house now the phone is ringing and no one's picking up and we just get this like beautiful like picturesque shot of the house and like the snowballing and the phone is ringing while the credits are going. Oh
1: my god. There's a couple of like schools of thought on the ending, again from like the theorists. Because Billy called or made a call to that sorority house every time that he killed someone is the idea. Whether it was someone in the house or not, the theory there is that the reason the phone starts ringing at the end is not just to tell us like, Hey, just a reminder, he is still alive. But that last thing that we hear from him is him still in the house and he's like giggling because he didn't get caught. And we know that she's now sedated and alone in her room and all the cops have left her and he's in the house with them. And so one school of thought is like, of course, that the phone ringing is just to sort of tie in the themes of the phone ringing and the cool ending and the other school of thought is that he went in and killed her immediately, and that's why he phoned the house again. And that's why we hear the ringing at the end without seeing it. So I was like, I kind of like that. As as bleak as that is, I really do like that theory that he went in there, silently killed her, that was game over, and then called the house. yeah. I like that too, because that just adds to like genuine horror of this movie. And the silence, there's no screaming, there's no struggle, there's no fight, because he would have just been able to walk in there, kill her, she wouldn't have even woken up, and it would have been game over. Exactly. This is such a good movie, like the more that I think about it, I'm like, oh my god, holy fuck. Originally, I was kind of thinking like, oh, you know, we could do Black Xmas, because it's not that we're not going to do any of these like more classic movies, it's just that Every time we work on the list, so many of the choices that we've come up with to kind of work through on our checklist have been more modern. That being said, I was thinking, I was like, at some point we'll do Black Xmas. We'll probably do it for like a Christmas something, if not this season, next season or whatever. It was a listener who's... Twitter at is -er Slasherologist that said, hey, if you guys haven't done Black Christmas yet, like the original Black Christmas, that would be an awesome Christmas horror movie to do. So thank you very much for the suggestion because I feel like I probably wouldn't have watched it for quite a bit longer. Slay. I'm very excited that we like sat down and did that one today. So thank you for the suggestion. That was very kind of you. It was. We love suggestions, by the way. We will happily take them. We'll probably do almost all of them within reason. If you have something you want to hear, we would undoubtedly love to cover it. So... And on that note, I think that that covers our discussion for Black Christmas. The OG Black Christmas. Next week's episode is going to be the 2006 remake, which is Black Xmas. So we are going to kind of try and compare them and see... How they hold up with one another. In the meantime, you can check us out on Linktree. Our Linktree is WYFSM. That has links to all of our socials, as well as everywhere that the show is available to be listened to. And we will see you guys next week for Black Xmas. I hope everyone is having a great December so far.
0: Bye!